is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he is also the editor on The Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, Allison. Is it a monthly newsletter? Uh, well, the whole issue comes out every month, but we have updates and articles every week. And exciting discussion boards, tools, resources, why there's everything for just about everyone. Wow, that is the most braggy I've ever heard you be about I your work. I didn't say it was a good everything, I just said it's there. <laughs> it's, there's some stuff there. <laughs> All right, in this week's episode, Morgan Housel joins us to talk about three peculiar traits of wealthy people. And we're also going to answer your question about self-directed IRAs and investigate the urban legend of retiring full-time on a cruise ship. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, it's time for Answers, Answers. Bill R. writes, I'm 52 years old and a longtime fool. After going through the dot-com and subprime pullbacks, combined with our age, I'm getting a bit hesitant to have so much of our retirement in the stock market. Would you recommend rolling some of our IR money into a real estate IRA? The plan would be to buy some investment property to rent out and secure another roughly $2,000 a month when we retire. What is a real estate investment IRA? A real estate IRA. When most people think of IRAs, they think of going to a place like Vanguard or Fidelity or even their bank. They open the account and they can buy CDs, bonds, stocks, mutual funds. But actually, there are a lot of other things you can buy within your IRA. In fact, the IRS actually doesn't say what you can buy; it only just points out the things that you can't. You can't buy life insurance. You can't buy collectibles. You can't use your IRA as collateral. So you actually can own real estate within your IRA. The thing is, most IRA brokerages don't allow it. If you want to own real estate in an IRA, you have to use something that has come to be called a self-directed IRA. Now, this isn't a term from the IRS. This has just become a term used in the industry. But there's special companies, special custodians that will allow you to use your IRA money to either invest in maybe real estate, could be in a business, could be tax liens, could be racehorses, all kinds of things that you can use your IRA money to invest in. The problem is, because these are specialized providers, it's not cheap, and there are a lot of rules you have to follow. So, for example, you could not use your IRA to buy a vacation home because you are not allowed to get any benefit from whatever you have inside your IRA. You couldn't use it to buy your next car or anything like that. Of course, you could take the money out of the IRA and use it for that, but you can't invest in something that you personally benefit from. So. While I think it's an interesting idea, I'm all for diversification, you have to be very careful when using one of these self-directed IRAs. Now, the other part of his question is, should he diversify his portfolio away from stocks and bonds and invest into real estate? And I think that's actually an interesting question. Barron's had an article last year in which it quoted Robert Schiller, the famous Yale economist and one of the co-creators of the Case-Schiller Housing Index, and it talked about how much does real estate diversify from a stock portfolio. And it actually found out that in 14 of the 15 previous U.S. equity bear markets, going back to 1956, real estate went up when the stock market went down. That obviously did not happen in the Great Recession. But that was an anomaly. In most cases, real estate is actually a good diversifier to a stock portfolio. In many cases, even better than bonds. So I think it's worth considering, except that, you have to understand that owning real estate has its own hassles, right? There's uh, high transaction costs. If you're going to be a landlord, that's a hassle. They're not very liquid. So I don't think it's right for everybody. 
And of course, it takes a lot of money to buy real estate. So uh, if you have you know five hundred thousand dollar portfolio, you only have enough money to buy at least in the D.C. area, not even a full house, but you know maybe one house or something like that. So that's something to consider. And if you're going to buy real estate, I certainly think it's a better idea that it's cash flow positive, and that whatever money you're using to put into it, it's producing income as well as the potential for price appreciation. We've talked before on the show how historically real estate maybe keeps up with inflation, and that's another good thing about it, right? Because when inflation goes up, real estate prices actually do go up. That's why it's actually better diversifier than bonds, because inflation can be bad for bonds. So, theoretically, I think it's a good idea to have real estate. Whether you do it with your IRA money, you have to be very careful. But it's better than racehorses. Well, I don't know. I haven't looked at the historical returns of racehorses. I'm an open-minded guy. Betting on racehorses, I don't know. Owning racehorses, I don't know. Might be a good idea. <laughs> look into that. I'll look into that for you. Three is a magic number. Morgan Housel is back. He is a behavioral finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and today he's going to talk about three peculiar traits of wealthy people. Peculiar traits that you might already have, and if not, you can certainly fake it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we do, right? (laughs) (laughs) Shh! Don't tell them. All right, so the first peculiar trait of wealthy people is that they're just a little bit sociopath. Sociopath, yeah. But in a good way, in a nice way. Define I mean, what I you think, mean by that, by a sociopath. Well, so, yeah, so what I meant by, by this in the article was uh, you know, one of the traits of sociopaths, I was reading a book on sociopaths, which is actually really fascinating. And one of the traits. Did it feel familiar is, at all? Uh, <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> one of the traits is their inability to get really emotional in, tra- in situations where normal people do. So for the typical sociopath that you're thinking about, cases of <laughs> violence don't affect them at all. And it kind of struck me that that is also true in a different way, kind of the same format for investors in that really successful investors, the types of situations that freak other people out, whether it's crashes or recessions or bear markets, don't seem to have much effect on really good investors. There's a point to make here, too. It's not that good investors are not emotional. Sometimes they're almost counter-emotional. When everyone else is freaking out, that's when they get excited. When everyone else gets excited, that's when they start freaking out. They have a totally different view and mindset and reaction and temperament around really emotional events. And it's rare. It's rarer than people think. Most investors want to think of themselves as having a good temperament. But I think a true... Uh, to have a, a you know different emotions than most people are in these situations is pretty rare. Right, because everyone... I mean, we all know... Buy low, sell high. Much easier said than done. Though. Much easier said. There's about a million and a half Warren Buffett quotes all about the yeah, importance and of, there's, of and this. And there's not a million and a half Warren Buffetts. So that's <laughs> a, lot, a lot of quotes, only one Buffett. Yeah, only one guy out of what many is, that gets what is, it. What is the quote to Buffett ratio, actually? <laughs> it's, it's infinity to one. <laughs> All right. The second peculiar trait of wealthy people is that they care about time periods most people can't comprehend. Yeah, I think most investors, especially professional investors, are interested in time periods of 30 days, 90 days, maybe a year. That's kind of their viewpoint of the investing world. What is the stock market going to do over the next six months or the next year? It's nearly impossible to not only 
beat the market, but to have to think you can have any sort of control over your investments over a one-year time horizon. Because there's just too much competition, because that's what everyone is focusing on, is the next year. And I think that one of the traits of successful people is they just detach themselves from that rat race of the next six months and the next year, and are truly focusing on things that will last, or that will play out over the next 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years. And most people just aren't willing to do that. They just don't have you know, their view of the future extends over the next 12 months, maybe. One good example of this is Jeff Bezos. He talks about this a lot, that most businesses, if they can't get a payoff in the next six months to the next year on a project or a new business unit, they want nothing to do with it. Amazon is one of the few companies that is willing to say, we're going to invest resources in this, and we're not going to see any payback for five or 10 years. But five or 10 years down the road, they're going to have an extraordinary payoff. And since they're one of the only businesses that's willing to do that, uh, they they kind of have that lane to themselves, and that's true for individual investors too. We talk about it all the time because I think it's one of the most important things in investing. If you have a longer time frame than your competitors, you have an edge over them. Things change so quickly, so you if for someone to make a decision based on what's happening right now can be such a huge mistake, and you can be proven wrong very quickly. And this year is a great illustration of that because the stock market had one of the worst starts ever this year, and now it is at a point where it's actually up for the year. And I know I have spoken with financial advisors whose clients have called and said, sell, I don't want to be in this market, when it was down 10-15%. And if they could not talk those clients out of it, those clients made a big mistake. That's right. Also, I was thinking of um, Chipotle comes to mind, right? Like they've taken a huge hit because of some food poisoning issues. And I think I overheard Tom Gardner, because we have an open office, it's very easy to overhear Tom Gardner. Um, he was saying he was at, a, he's speaking at a restaurant, a convention of like restaurant executives. Mm-hmm. And he was asking them, he's like, so what do you guys think of Chipotle? And he's, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, shaking their head, man, rough. It's so rough. And he's like, well, but what do you think about Chipotle in like five, 10 years? And they're like, oh, they're going to be fine. They're going to be great. Um, so being able to not focus on the fact that Chipotle is giving people really upset stomachs right now. That's right. <laughs> it's hard though. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard it's hard both to think long term, but I think it's also hard for business owners like Bezos. They're not all Bezos. For even them to have like the focus to to look at the long term. So many companies have short attention spans too. And a lot of it is the companies effectively have to because their shareholders demand it from yeah. them. So it's not that the CEOs don't have the temperament to be long term thinkers, it's that they're just trying to hold on to their jobs. And if they really took a long term approach, they wouldn't have their jobs anymore. And it's rare. I think companies like Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon and Google, either through their share ownership because a CEO controls the company, or just because they've done such a good job at communicating their vision to investors. It's rare that you get a company where shareholders actually let you take a truly long-term approach. It's extremely rare. There are only a handful of companies where that's the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. At, at, the, at the annual Berkshire Hathaway meetings, uh, we were at one a couple years ago. It's actually where Bro and I met. Oh, the first time. I remember that. Your eyes lock across the room. So at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, they have. Uh, as a shareholder, you can vote on different, you know, to vote for the board of directors and a couple, you know, other business decisions that are made at a company. Shareholders get to vote, and Buffett kind of jokingly says, uh, "Yeah, you know, so if you're a shareholder, you can submit your votes, but I have my votes in my pocket, so it's already decided because like, he, <laughs> he, he controls the company." Right, so it right. and it's it's the same at Facebook, it's the same at Google, where the founders, the CEOs, control the companies, so they can do whatever they want. And if they're a good leader, then all right, yeah, cool, rock on. All right, third and final peculiar trait of wealthy people is that they don't give a damn what you think about them. Yeah. You especially. 
No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, actually, our <laughs> listeners do care what I think about them. Kidding. They do. They well, yeah. should. Well, they, so I, in, in the article, I quoted uh, from Scott Adams, who is the, the writer of the Dilbert comic. And he had a great quote. He's a, he's a really smart guy, and he's written some smart books. And he has a quote where he said, uh, if you want to get ahead at anything in life, you need to figure out the price of success and then pay that price. Uh, and the price, the price of success in finance, to get ahead financially, it seems really simple and obvious, but I think we don't talk about it enough. It's just living below your means. And most people aren't willing to do that. And specifically what I mean is, for most people, if they were to get a raise of $100, their material aspirations would rise by 100 or 101. And the only way to grow wealthy over time is to get a $100 raise and have your aspirations grow by significantly less than that. So can you get a $100 raise and not spend it? Most people aren't willing to do that. They're just going to keep ratcheting their lifestyle up with the money that they, uh, that they accrue, either in wealth or in salary. And the only way to truly gain wealth over time is to live far below that. And that's extremely rare. A lot of this started with the book, The Millionaire Next Door, in the 1990s, which started with a simple question uh, that the author... Uh, what was his name? Thomas Stanley. Thomas Stanley. I knew, I knew there was a Stanley, but I thought it was his and, first name. And uh, Danko, Stanley. one of his co-author. It started with a simple question of how can a, I think it was a construction worker, how can a construction worker be wealthier than a dentist? And it turns out that that absolutely can be the case. If the construction worker is living significantly below their means, and the dentist is living paycheck to paycheck, and a lot of them do, then the construction worker is legitimately going to be wealthier than the dentist. And a lot of times you don't think about that, but the correlation between income and wealth is lower than people think. What gains wealth is your savings rate, which doesn't have a lot to do with your income. Yeah, and in a post on a Wall Street Journal blog, I think it was Thomas Stanley, the co-author of the book, who sadly passed away, I think it was a year ago, said that income explains maybe 30% of wealth. Yeah. The rest of it is what you do with that money. Yeah. Which is why we don't pay bro anything. That's true. And still doing and okay. so wealthy. Up. He just shows Every up. I sleep day. here. Still I, rich. I yeah. get my food from the company refrigerator. It's excellent. <laughs> well, tying it back to the whole point about they don't give a damn what you think about them, though, this kind of gets back to what we talked about last week about right. how one of the, the benefits that you get out of buying stuff is that emotional benefit of what does it say about me? Um, and how does this thing change how other people perceive me. So I drive a Bentley because I want people to think I'm wealthy and whatever. And and what we how we feel about ourselves. <laughs> how we feel like about you ourselves. You want to make yourself feel good because look, I'm driving this nice car. I must be worth something. You know, when people have nice if someone's driving a Bentley, they don't actually I think get pleasure from driving the Bentley. They get pleasure from what they anticipate is that other people will give them respect and admiration for having that much money. But I think that oftentimes by a larger amount than a lot of people think. That's a false sense of what's going on. Like very few people see someone driving a Bentley and think that guy is cool. That guy is successful. <laughs> I think what people think is if I had that car, people would think I'm successful and cool. That's kind of what. The, like no one really cares about the guy driving the car. <laughs> right. They picture themselves having that. So it's a it's a false sense of. I, know, I used to live in Los Angeles where. Um, especially back during that credit boom when you could finance anything, Bentleys were pretty free. I don't know. I, I never looked at the driver as with a sense of admiration. That guy. No. Yeah, when I see a car like that, my first reaction this is partially from reading the Millionaire Next Door is that person must be in a lot of debt because most studies right. indicate that that's probably true. People in very large houses have very large mortgages and big cars. If you see loans. someone driving a $100,000 car, the only thing you know about their finances is that they have 100000 less dollars than they did 
before. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know anything else about that. When you throw in the interest on the loan, he made uh, a little bit less. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The millionaire next door found that the average millionaire, their savings rate is 20%. Yeah. Um, and a, there was a study from Fidelity that looked at their biggest 401ks, and they basically came to the same conclusion. So that's also another common trait among the people who have more wealth. They're saving a significant amount of their money, $1 for every five that they make. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. Three peculiar traits of wealthy people that even you can emulate. So the first one is to be just a little bit of a sociopath and try to, as Warren Buffett said, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. Also, think long-term. Think very, very long-term because most other people aren't. And finally, don't worry what the neighbors think about you. And for the love of God, don't drive a Bentley because the three of us are judging you don't severely. Care. <laughs> don't care. Oh, yeah, right. we don't care. We will That's not true. be impressed. We'll be unimpressed. We'll, we'll be the opposite of impressed. Bro will probably impressed. key your Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I might live in it, though. Cause I... <laughs> Morgan, right. thank you for joining Thanks. us. Come back. Thanks. If you, the listeners, want more Morgan Housel, you can head to fool.com where he writes a column every now and then. Um, I don't know, just Google his name, Morgan Housel. You can also follow him on Twitter at TMF Housel. At TMF Housel. There you go. Thanks. Exciting and. The possibilities of what you can do in your retirement are endless. And here's an option to consider the never ending cruise. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hum the love boat. I'm not going to sing it for you, folks. Oh, yeah. You're no fun. <laughs> Turns out it's not just an urban legend. Many people have actually done it. They've retired and lived and gone cruising full time. Why not? Why not? I don't know why not. So here's a few people. Here's a few examples. One is Lee Waxtetter. She's an 86 year old Florida widow, and she sold her home and most other stuff. And she has been living aboard a cruise ship for more than seven years. She says she's done nearly a hundred or more cruises since she, um, and 15 world cruises since she joined it. Um, since she basically sold everything and took up cruising full time. Um, she she loves it. Like she loves it because she feels like all of her housing is taken care of, all of her eating needs are taken care of, and she just sits on the boat and just goes and like visits all these countries all the time. Well, it has a few things that she's doing a few things that many studies indicate will correlate to a very happy retirement. First of all, she's being very social. She talked about how she takes her meals at a at a table for eight people and she meets new people on every cruise. Um, she is intellectually engaged. She goes and sees all these other countries and meets all and learns all kinds of new things. I think she said that she spends a lot of her time dancing, yeah, um, and with the doing the dance lessons. So she's physically active. She's learning things, um, and she is actually able to stay in contact with her family because her family lives in Miami. And every time the boat goes to Miami, she sees her family. And the article indicated that's about five times a year. So these are all things that point to someone having a happy retirement, and it's all contained there on a big floating boat. She estimates it costs her 164000 a year. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. That's a lot of That's money. It's not, money. not for everybody. Well, she's not the only one to do it. Um, there are other two widows that we found who had done it. B. B. Mueller and Claire Macbeth both took up residence on the QE2, and the latter lived on it for 14 years. Wow. Um, I don't know. It kind of sounds like a pretty good gig if you have the money and enjoy cruising. Like these guys knew, these ladies knew that they enjoyed it 
before they retired. Yeah, and they they when you read the articles, you'll they talk about how they get to be sort of see the crew as their family. So, and one of them spends some time doing needlepoint and usually gives it to the crew members. So it's all. It, it's all better than if you were a widow living in a house and apartment all on your own. And how does it compare to retirement, living in a retirement home, you might wonder? Well, someone did the research. Lee Lindquist at Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine compared the cost over a 20-year life expectancy. I assume that means over the 20, over a 20-year retirement. Is that average, about 20 years? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, because okay. most people retire in their mid-60s, and the average person lives to their mid-80s. So she compared moving to an assisted living facility or a nursing home with a cruise ship. And so, including the expenses of acute illnesses, Medicare reimbursement, other factors, there are doctors aboard these cruise ships, by the way. And she determined that the net cost of cruise ship living was only about $2,000 more than the alternative. So she estimated at 230000 versus 228000 That has got to be a very teeny, tiny room that you're staying in, though. Yeah. The one thing I would, a couple of things I would say about that comparison is, first of all, that's actually pretty high in terms of um, nursing home care. The average cost around the country is about ninety thousand. That's a little different than assisted living, but that's a pretty high number. Mm-hmm. Also, um, very few people are in those types of facilities for that long. Uh, but I still think it's pretty interesting. I mean, let's face it; it's not for most people. You don't have that amount of money, but if you have it. It's a great. It's almost. It's very similar, right? All you're living in a nice little apartment of some kind. Your food is taken care of. There are people there to take care of your healthcare needs. There are social activities like bingo and dancing. It's actually quite similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the first one she said that like the dancing was a big selling point, like you said. And she actually had been living full time on a previous cruise ship for three years, but then they stopped their dancing program, and so she switched cruise ships to a cruise ship that does dancing. It's just so sweet. It is very sweet. All right. So, would you ever do it? Would you ever retire to a cruise ship? I wouldn't. Uh, my dad actually was a ship channeler, which is uh, someone who supplies ships. He w- lived in Tampa. They would telex what they needed from him, and he would go out and get it, whether it was uh, food, supplies, uh, tools. I mean, we would go all over Tampa and get whatever they needed, and you'd bring it to the ship. So I've been on many ships in my life. Um, I think I had enough of them. <laughs> I feel kind of confined being on a ship. But uh, I've taken one like full-on cruise. It was fine one time, but I think that's probably it. Yes. How about you? No. no. I do like the idea of traveling a lot in retirement. I could easily see myself being that guy who gets an RV and drives around the country for a year. Yeah? Oh, yeah. yeah my wife and I talk about that quite a bit. Oh, that'd be so cute. You two hitting the open road. That's right. Well, we figure we, there's a low probability that our kids will all stay here after they graduate from college and start their families, so we'll just have to go to wherever they are. And there are people who do that, too. They sell their house, they put the possessions they want to keep in storage, and they buy the RV, which can cost as little as like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, and you stay at campgrounds all over the country. It's actually a pretty fun thing to do, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. I'm more of a destination person than a journey person, so I'm going to let you take that RV and I'm just going to fly to places. Gotcha. We'll meet up somewhere. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Don't count your chickens on that one, buddy. (laughs) All right. That's going to do it for today's episode. The show is edited um, cruisingly by Rick Engdahl. (laughs) Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.